And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, August 30th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, how HUD could get a better handle on funds that help pay for low-income housing. Plus, the Postal Service's experiment with automated vehicles kind of fizzled. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Defense Department has unveiled what it calls Replicator, a plan to introduce cheap, unmanned systems with points on them, lots and lots of them, to help it better compete with China. Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks outlined the plan for the program at a National Defense Industrial Association conference. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr has the details and exactly what does the Pentagon hope to accomplish with Replicator? Swarms of little things that blow up? Yes, swarms of little things that blow up. That's right. What it is is a way to compete with China. And the premise is China is building so many ships, so many missiles, so many weapons, and they have so many people. So how do we compete with that? Well, the Pentagon's idea is that we compete with that with cutting-edge technology and lots of cheap, relatively disposable things. Here's Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks. This is about mastering the technology of tomorrow. To stay ahead, we're going to create a new state of the art, just as America has before, leveraging attributable autonomous systems in all domains which are less expensive, put fewer people in the line of fire, and can be changed, updated, or improved with substantially shorter lead times. We'll counter the PLA's mass with mass of our own, but ours will be harder to plan for, harder to hit, harder to beat. I was thinking, why say that in public if you're going to do that? But China can probably find out anyway about four milliseconds after the United States knows about it, so I guess there's no harm in announcing it publicly. And she says attritable, which sounds like attrition, which means you can expend a lot of them doing their destructive little stuff. So what are they going to make? Did she outline what these things would actually be? Well, it's interesting you should ask that because she was a little cagey about that. She said she doesn't want to say exactly what they're going to make because China might find out. What she did say is that they've been talking to the COCOMs, the combatant commands, and asking them what specific systems they need. In fact, the Indo-PACOM commander, uh, Admiral Aquilino, was here talking, and he brought this up and said, yes, we absolutely need these attritable unmanned systems to combat China. So anyway, they're, they're going to make things. They're not going to tell us exactly what they are. But what she does offer is that it's a multiplier of manpower. You may remember the collaborative combatant aircraft, which is an Air Force idea where you have unmanned planes that fly with manned planes, and it multiplies the number of planes you have in the air. I think it's kind of the same idea. The important part, though, is that they're cheap and somewhat disposable. Here's Kathleen Hicks. Since we need to break through barriers and catalyze change with urgency, we've set a big goal for Replicator to field attributable autonomous systems at scale of multiple thousands in multiple domains within the next 18 to 24 months. And the replication won't just be happening from a production standpoint. We'll also aim to replicate and inculcate how we will achieve this goal so we can scale what's relevant in the future again and again and again. Yeah, logistics, production, that's all key to it, you know, and doctrine to deploy those things. I guess we can 
pretty well be sure that they will not be produced in China, though. Fair to say, Alex? (laughs) I don't think they'll be produced in China, Tom. All right. And if they have this goal of fielding all of this in less than two years, the question is, are they going to start from scratch with a custom design? Or did they say whether there's something commercial that might be adaptable? That's an interesting question, because really, custom design should take longer than two years. But they're saying, no, this isn't available commercially at all. We do have to custom design it. They're saying they're going to build thousands of them, and then they're going to be cheap. They're going to be relatively disposable. So I think the point is they're going to, well, replicate them. They're going to design it, and then they're going to build the same design over and over again. To be clear, America still benefits from platforms that are large, exquisite, expensive, and few. But Replicator will galvanize progress in the too slow shift of U.S. military innovation to leverage platforms that are small, smart, cheap, and many. Yeah, that's a good point. They've got a new bomber coming out of Northrop Grumman, but let's face it, if that thing is capable of dropping a bomb within 20 years, that'll be you know pretty good. But in the meantime, they have to have something. And so what did she say about the organization around this initiative? How's that all going to work? Well, it looks like it's going to have pretty high-level guidance. The project is supposed to be directly supervised by the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kathleen Hicks, and by the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, if there is ever one confirmed again. And then additionally, Hicks has set up some boards of the Defense Department's chief technology officers, and they'll all meet regularly and kind of collaborate to get this project up and running. Here's what Hicks had to say about it. At the beginning of the administration, I created our innovation steering group with Undersecretary Shu right here, um, uh, chaired for us. What we found is that there was a need in the system to pull that work up systematically to the deputy secretary level and allow uh, Undersecretary Shu to pull the CTOs. That DISG will the, be the driving engine for Replicator. We also created a body that will feed that, that Doug Beck, uh, director of DIU, who is a direct report now, uh, will lead. All right. So they have thought about this. I was thinking, you know, with respect to those lack of nominations, maybe they could test these new replicated systems on Senator Tuberville. Just kidding. Just kidding. (laughs) Did she mention about the funding? Do they have a program? I mean, did this get through the planning, programming, budgeting and execution process to where they have money for it? Well, maybe some, but not too much. When I asked that question of a Defense Department spokesperson, he said, well, we have a a couple hundred million dollars that we're going to get through reprogramming. But it looks like what they're depending on is partnering with the uh, Defense Innovation Unit. Now, that the the DIU has been the appropriators are saying they're going to give them a billion dollars next year. That, of course, hasn't happened yet. But presumably some of that funding would make its way into the replicator program. So it sounds like an other transaction authority purchase, at least initially here. At least initially, yes. All right. Well, exciting program. We'll have to see what they do in the future. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Postal Service's experiment with automated vehicles right down here on the ground is kind of fizzled. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. 
Self-driving vehicles are nothing new. They've been operating inside warehouses and factories for decades. The Postal Service a few years back purchased 350 automated guided vehicles to move pallets in its processing centers. But according to the USPS Office of Inspector General, the experiment didn't quite work out. We get more now from Audit Director Todd Watson. Mr. Watson, good to have you with us. Hi, Tom. Thank you for having me. And let's begin with what they were trying to do here. Right. So the Postal Service invested in automated guided vehicles, which are self-driving forklifts or tuggers that will move mail from a dock when it comes in off a truck into the workroom floor to be sorted by machines. And then when machine sorts it, they will take the mail back to the dock. And so the Postal Service invested in this to try and reduce work hours associated with people that would have to manually drive the mail between the dock and workroom floor. This is very short distances, maybe a couple hundred yards at a time. Correct. Correct. The Postal Service had expected this would save about $298 million by reducing the amount of human work hours associated with this work. And these were commercial standard types of automated vehicles that you might find in, you know, an Amazon warehouse or, you know, UPS or something? Correct. This was a third-party vendor that sold these machines to different companies to use in their warehouses. And just a quick question, in your report on this, the amount they spent on them is redacted. I'm just curious as to why that's the case. Well, the Postal Service felt like they would lose some competitive advantage if it disclosed how much cost was associated with this investment. Or they paid too much and they don't want anyone to know, but we'll speculate on that one, I guess. So what happened when they deployed these 350 devices or gadgets, robots? So we found that the Postal Service did not meet its goals for using AGVs. Initially, they expected to operate each AGV 40 hours per week. However, we found almost a quarter of the AGVs weren't used once in over a year. And additionally, we found another quarter that were used on average about once per day. So as a result, we questioned costs totaling $28 million related to the purchase of those underutilized AGVs. And we also estimated that the Postal Service would fall short of their projected savings by at least $105 million. Yeah. And are these things still deployed or what's the status now? Because these were purchased back in 2019. Right. So they're still deployed. What the Postal Service told us is why they didn't use and what we found by interviewing local management was they were deployed in 2019. And right after that is when COVID happened and there was a big surge of package volume. And that caused a lot of issues for the Postal Service. One, it created congestion in their facilities. They didn't have enough space to house all of those packages. And these self-driving AGVs need clear aisleways to be able to operate. If there's an obstruction in this way, it would just stop and not be able to complete to its destination. Additionally, the Pulsar was kind of rearranged some of their facilities moving machines in and out and in different places to try and increase the flow. However, these AGVs were programmed to go to a certain location. And so when that was changed, we found the local facility did not have the knowledge or expertise to be able to update the routing information on these AGVs. Right. So it sounds like some planning for contingencies or for updating, which you'd probably want to do even without the pandemic coming in, because if you have this gadget, well, maybe you want it to go down aisle three today instead of aisle five. Right. And that's what we found. There were a few higher performing facilities that were able to use AGVs effectively. And what we found was they made sure they had clear aisleways 
for the AGVs to go down. And they also were able to pretty much teach themselves by communicating with that third-party vendor on how to change and update routes and pick up and drop off locations. So we made a recommendation to the poll service to go ahead and share some of those best practices that those sites that are actually using them learned to increase the overall usage at the postal service. We're speaking with Todd Watson. He's audit director at the Postal Service's Office of Inspector General. So, in other words, they can salvage this if they, I mean, the machines are still there. They sound like they are still fairly new and guessing because it's a factory capital piece of gear, they probably last a long time. Correct. There are some locations where this is working really well. Postal Service contends that some of the locations they deployed them at weren't the best, especially after that COVID spike of packages. And so we also recommended that the Postal Service kind of develop and execute a plan to evaluate locations that would be best suited for these AGVs and then go ahead and deploy them to those locations to help increase the usefulness. These are commercial AGVs, which means other commercial entities use them. Could the Postal Service get some information from another client? It's probably someone the Postal Service already does business with. Uh, Certainly that was an avenue they can go down. You know, they contracted with a vendor to provide these machines, and certainly they could provide additional support to the Postal Service if needed. And what about managing them? That is to say, should one person on a shift or one person in a facility have quote-unquote ownership of a given AGV, and they could name it Betty or something, and then they would be responsible for programming, maintaining it, and making sure it's used to greatest efficiency. I mean, that's how a lot of these things tend to work. Absolutely. At the places we saw where they were being used effectively, the people were really engaged with the machines. They saw the benefit and really enjoyed using them to complete the task of moving mail through the facility. And so they kind of rallied around those machines and really believed in them. And your staff visited several sites, for example, Middlesex, Essex in North Reading, Massachusetts had low use, for example, one of many that had low uses, but the Music City Annex in Nashville and the Oklahoma City Annex in Oklahoma City, they had high usage. Is there a plan for the high usage facilities to share what they know with Los Angeles, Seminole, Royal Palm, etc., Nashua, New Hampshire, where the utilization is low? Correct. And that was the recommendation we made to the Pulse Service was kind of share these best practices of how it was successful in the locations that are doing well to share that with the locations that are not doing as well. And how did USPS take the recommendations? Well, they disagreed with some of our findings in the report, but they actually agreed and will implement all of our recommendations. So that should correct the low usage if they are able to implement our recommendations. And this was, I'm sure, way outside the scope of study, but as the Postal Service contemplates, just because everybody thinks this is the way the world should go, not for any particular known practical reason, self-driving, say, route delivery vehicles, is there anything learnings that could translate from these warehouse-type equipment to someday self-delivering out on routes? I mean, does anything translate over from one domain to the other? Well, certainly, as the Postal Service is investing in new technology, just learning how to deploy new technology, the knowledge needed and the coordination needed to make it successful. And as the Pulse Service is implementing its Delivering for America, its 10-year plan to achieve service excellence and financial stability, 
they're planning to invest $40 billion in its processing, delivery, and logistics network. And so as it invests that money, it'll be important for them to invest in options that improve the efficiency and effectiveness of the Postal Service. Yeah, it sounds like in a lot of these cases, it's not the technology that's really at an issue because, I mean, really, I read and wrote about self-driving AGVs literally 40 years ago in factories. They they had a magnetic stripe on the floor or there was different technologies to guide them. I'm sure that's come a long way. But it's the management of it and the planning for it more than the tech itself, isn't it? That is correct. Uh, you know, when there's a change to how you do operations, there's always a learning curve for implementing and getting better. Todd Watson is Audit Director at the Postal Service Office of Inspector General. Thanks so much for joining me. All right. Thank you for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Get the Federal Drive delivered automatically. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, federal construction contractors have a slew of new compliance headaches. But first, how HUD could get a better handle on funds that help pay for low-income housing. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Housing and urban development doesn't build low-income housing, but it helps finance it. Since 2016, HUD's Housing Trust Fund has made grants to 263 projects for people with extremely low incomes. The Government Accountability Office found that HUD officials need to do a better job of monitoring and overseeing the use of Housing Trust Fund dollars. Here with details, GAO's Director of Financial Markets and Community Investment Team, Jill Naman. Ms. Naman, good to have you back. Thanks. It's great to be here, Tom. And glad that you have moved from an acting director to director. Well-deserved promotion there sometime since the last time we had you on. And tell us about this program. It looks like HUD takes a very small portion of the financing of these projects that are, again, serving very low-income people. What's the purpose here? What are they trying to do here in the first place? Right. That's right, Tom. So the Housing Trust Fund is really a dedicated funding source to help assist the development of rental housing, particularly for those very lowest income households. It is a small percentage of new loans that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac purchase that go into this fund. The Housing and Urban Development Department allocates this money to states, and states then award grants to developers to build these projects. And it's really needed because these housing projects, rental housing projects, can be very complex and very expensive. And developers rely on future income to help cover their mortgage payments to provide some profit. And when the tenants in the projects are lower income, the amount of income from that rent doesn't really cover their costs. So some additional subsidy and assistance is really needed to make developing these projects more financially feasible. So it's safe to say these are not luxury housing with swimming pools on the roof and palm trees in the lobby, but something that somebody can make money off of with low rents and a little subsidies maybe from the state funds in general? Sure. Other sources of funding are private funding, other federal programs, state and local funding uh, loans. But really the units are, we have some pictures in our report, the projects include units that are some that are designated for housing trust fund units and some that are not. So they are pretty indistinguishable, the units that are, are designated from housing trust fund from others. 
Got it. Well, the point is you found that HUD needs to do a better job of overseeing how the money is used because HUD money, like all federal and state money, comes with strings attached, things you have to do to comply. And so what are some of the areas that HUD needs to look at better to make sure the money is being spent wisely and according to the rules? That's right. We did find some weaknesses where HUD could improve their oversight. Funding has been going through this program since 2016, but HUD has not started in-depth field monitoring at all of this program yet. So we found some areas where they plan to do it, start doing it next year, but we found some areas where they could do some things now in a more centralized way to improve their oversight. There were a few places where there were certain requirements that HUD is not looking at all yet, and some additional instruction to grantees could be helpful. In addition, we also found some areas where HUD could improve their reporting so that the information in their reports is not misinterpreted. Right. There are certain pieces of information that the grantees are supposed to enter directly into HUD's own systems, and that doesn't always happen. That's right. There's some information in their systems. The completed number of, of unit for the program actually is one of, the, one of the pieces of information that we saw. And the information is pre-populated with just the housing trust fund unit. And grantees are supposed to update that information with the total number of units. As I mentioned, projects can include both housing trust fund units and not housing trust fund units. We're speaking with Jill Naman. She's director of the Financial Markets and Community Investment Team at the Government Accountability Office. And HUD generally agreed with the recommendations that you made? Yes, that's right. They did. They agreed with all five recommendations that we made and have actually started taking some steps to implement some of them. So we were pretty pleased with that. And your methodology was to look at a sample of these projects. Give us a sense of how big the sample was and how many dollars were involved. Sure. We looked at a sample of 12 states and 70 projects, really dug into the cost development information and written agreements and all of the documentation for all of those projects. We also looked at some of the data that was available from HUD for all the projects that have been completed with housing trust fund money. All right. And I just want to ask you about, you have a pie chart showing where these projects got their funding on average. And the fund we're talking about, the Housing Trust Fund, was 9.6% of it. 40% was low-income housing tax credit. So that's, I guess, ultimately treasury money also. And then 26.5% is private, 19% state and local. So essentially, private entities put up a quarter, roughly, of the money to build these things. This is beyond maybe the scope of the report, but what does that say about the market for this type of housing. Without a lot of federal and state subsidy, it probably wouldn't get built at all. Fair to say? I think that is fair to say. Each of these projects really do require a very complex web of funding sources from many different places. And we found that the projects that were assisted by housing trust fund money, the housing trust fund portion of the project's costs was about 10%. So it really does take a lot more money from a variety of sources to get these projects completed. Yeah, so 10% covers about the floor space of the bathroom and the rest of it comes from other sources (laughs) in these apartments. And this trust fund, does HUD get back? I mean, that implies that maybe a portion of the proceeds come back to HUD to keep the fund replenished? Or is it simply a pay-as-you-go fund that's appropriated? It's a pay-as-you-go. It's annually allocated from the business of the Fannie, Fannie and Freddie Mac, the loans that they purchase. So the amount that goes into the fund every year and that's allocated every year can really vary depending on the amount of business that they have. The highest amount 
I think was in 2021, it was over $700 million. Last year, it was around $350 million. So it can really fluctuate quite a bit. And just a final question, the classic 8A housing program that HUD has operated for decades. This is a separate program, correct, for very low-income people? That's correct. That is a separate program. The Housing Trust Fund program is a separate allocation that goes right to the states, and the states really determine what priorities they want to use the money for that best fits the needs in their states. If they want to focus on new construction, if they want to focus on rehabilitating existing structures, if they want to focus on providing housing for homeless or previously incarcerated people, they can set their priorities. Jill Naman is director of the Financial Markets and Community Investment Team at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. And we'll post this interview together with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, federal construction contractors have a slew of new compliance headaches. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The industry is trying to understand the extent of Davis-Bacon regulations for federal construction coming out of the Labor Department. The final 812-page rule hasn't quite taken effect yet, but already contractors to the government or on federally funded projects have a slew of new risk and compliance obligations. We get more now from Haynes Boone Procurement Attorney Dan Ramish. Dan, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. And... So somebody's paying you by the hour, I hope, like they're paying construction workers to read this 800-pound rule. What, what's your takeaway from it? Rightly, I think a lot of the emphasis has been on the changes in methodology for how DOL calculates prevailing wages. But there are a lot of other effects on contractors that will affect how they comply with Davis-Bacon and the Davis-Bacon-related acts, which apply to federal assistance agreements because there are various statutes that incorporate Davis-Bacon requirements. And so those requirements will will extend to Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act-funded construction projects in addition to procurement contracts. But there are really five things that kind of stuck out at me, and that this is not an exhaustive list of changes, but the ways that in which the regulations expand the scope of coverage of Davis-Bacon requirements. They have new rules for incorporating updated wage determinations in existing contracts. And then there are provisions about incorporating the requirements of Davis-Bacon by operation of law if a clause or the wage rate is not included in the contract itself. I mean, basically, it's a way of getting contracts to use union wage rates. If you just scrape away all the nice language around it, this is what they want, right? There are effectively minimum wages for different classes of workers based on the types of construction and locality. And the administration's aim clearly is to increase wages for construction workers on federally funded projects. And so in part, they're doing that by expanding the scope to cover new types of work. So they specifically list various types of energy infrastructure and related activities as types of construction. So solar panels, wind turbines, 
broadband installation and installation of electric car chargers are added to the list of construction because, of course, there's a lot of energy work in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. There's also an expansion of the definition of the site of the work. The traditional rules do have some coverage of off-site work, but it's somewhat limited. Generally, it's, it's limited to the physical location where the construction will remain. But there's broader coverage in the new rule for secondary construction sites, which the Department of Labor indicated that it's intended to respond to technological developments that allow companies to do more construction of entire portions of public buildings off-site and then transport it to the site just to install it. And so the, the new regulations will provide for coverage of secondary construction sites where construction is for specific use in the building or work, and it's not simply reflecting a manufacturer construction of a product made available to the general public. Right. So this could be then the fabrication of, say, steel trusses, and instead of fabricate or instead of putting all the pieces together at, like a puzzle at site, it might be assembled somewhere else, put on a flatbed, and then the roof trusses of steel or something, I'm just making this up, would be delivered, but that would be covered the, uh, the construction of those trusses. It gets to be a, a little bit of a finer point because commercial fabrication plants with prefabricating housing components are not covered. The, the rules are pretty complicated, but it, it, it's got to be a, a larger portion of the building and not just uh, a, a uh, prefabricated housing component. I'm just trying uh, to imagine what piece of a building that's, say, five stories tall that you can make somewhere else and bring to the site. But regardless, that's what the rules say. We'll have to leave the constructors for those details. Yes. And so there, there's broader coverage where where parts of the construction are, are uh, constructed off-site at locations that are dedicated exclusively or nearly so to the performance of the contractor project. Under the old rules or the current rules until the new rules go into effect, only off-site locations that are established specifically for, for the performance of the contract sure. or that are directly adjacent to the site of the work are covered by Davis-Bacon. So there are probably new contractors and new portions of the work that contractors are performing that will be considered Davis-Bacon construction now under the new rules. We're speaking with Dan Ramish. He's a partner at Haynes Boone. And you use the word by operation of law. What does that mean in a regulation? Many people who are involved in federal government contracts are familiar with the Christian doctrine, which is a doctrine that developed in the case law that recognizes that where there's a mandatory requirement to include a contract clause in a contract, and that expresses a significant or deeply ingrained strand of public procurement policy, that clause will be read into the contract even if it's left out by accident because the contracting officer doesn't have authority to leave it out. The regulations now for Davis-Bacon will provide for incorporation of the Davis-Bacon requirements even if the clauses or the prevailing wage schedule isn't included in the contract. But contractors don't need to be too worried insofar as it also provides that contractors must be compensated for resulting increases in wages in accordance with applicable law. It does mean that there it can be administrative hassles of having to you know, make back payments, but they, they'll get paid at the end of the day. So in other words, the taxpayers are paying these higher wages for federal construction, basically, which I guess was always the case. That's right. All right. And certainly industry groups have been quick to say the taxpayers are the ones that are ultimately paying for wages for construction workers on federally funded projects. Got it. All right. And then what about uh, noncompliance? You found that there are some provisions for consequences of noncompliance with all of these provisions. That's right. So the rules were somewhat more relaxed 
or or less severe for violations of the Davis-Bacon related acts than for Davis-Bacon violations. So the rules that apply to uh, federal federally assisted contracts like grants and so forth uh, didn't provide for as harsh pen- penalties in some cases. So uh, the debarment standard, for example, under Davis-Bacon provided for a mandatory three-year debarment period. And whereas under Davis-Bacon related acts, there was a maximum three-year period. And there's broader coverage of debarment where that ent- of entities in which the debarred entity has an interest and responsible offerors. And so the Department of Labor is bringing the rules for Davis-Bacon related acts applicable to grants, cooperative agreements, loans, and loan guarantees, and so forth, into alignment with procurement, the procurement contract consequences, uh, which are pretty severe. And so w- where the, the standards have been lower or relaxed, they're now as strict as, as for Davis-Bacon. And that applies also to the debarment standard itself. Uh, there was a slightly lower standard requiring aggravated or willful violations rather than just disregard of obligations to workers or subcontractors. All right. It sounds complicated and expensive for the compliance regime that you're going to have to have, I guess, as a contractor. And whistleblower protections are also cited in this rule. Yes. Along the same lines, there are there previously were not any explicit protections for whistleblowers. And by way of encouraging whistleblowers to step forward, now there are provisions protecting people that report violations or uh, issue complaints or otherwise cooperate with investigations or compliance actions or testify, protecting them from retaliation by their employer. All right. So if you add all of this up, then, I mean, what should federal constructors, contracting construction contractors do now? Well, there are a lot of uh, complicated rules surrounding which specific workers and types of workers uh, and work are covered by the Davis-Bacon requirements and the consequences for not paying the prevailing wages in accordance with the requirements are pretty severe. So contractors need to look carefully at the extent to which the Davis-Bacon coverage is changed under the new rules uh, and, and be careful to comply in projects moving forward once these rules go into effect. Right. This rule is not totally in effect yet, but it's basically signed and sealed, just not delivered. Yes. The Federal Register indicated the scheduled publication date was August 23rd, and the rule will go into effect for most purposes 60 days after it's actually published in the Federal Register. There are a couple of exceptions where the changes in the updating of wage determinations in existing contracts go into effect without without that 60-day delay. But most existing contracts awarded before that effective date will be under the regulations that were in effect when they were awarded. All right. So you've got your Labor Day reading if you're a attorney for a contractor or you're a contractor. Dan Ramish is a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. We're glad you read this thing so everyone else, well, they still have to. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Federal agencies are still getting to the bottom of pandemic fraud, and they've got a long way to go. The Labor Department just uncovered yet another big source of misspent funds. The department reports more than a third of funds spent in its pandemic unemployment assistance program turned out to be improper payments. Ouch. 
Former pandemic watchdogs say that translates into a startling amount of fraud. I'd say, duh. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. Jory, tell us exactly what Labor Department found here. Right. So the Labor Department in this recent report, they estimated that the improper payment rate for this pandemic unemployment assistance program between March 2020 and September of 2021, when the program was active, they estimated 36% of those payments were improper payments. And we should mind our P's and Q's here. Not all improper payments amounts to fraud. But what this breaks down to here is overpayments by and large. There were some small degree of underpayments as a result of that improper payments. But another significant fraction here was just payments where they couldn't readily identify whether it was improper or, or not. And remind us who was supposed to benefit from the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program, the PUA. So this program was supposed to benefit freelancers and those participating in the gig economy, people who, by the very nature of their work, had a tough time proving their level of employment and whether they were unable to continue working. What we've learned for a while now is that unemployment insurance programs of all stripes were prone to improper payments since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. But Amy Simon, the former acting deputy assistant secretary for the Labor Department's Employment and Training Administration, she said that at least with the regular unemployment insurance process, there were some checks to make sure that that was on the up and up. Someone comes and claims unemployment insurance, you connect with and check with their previous employer. Like, was it this person? Did they make this much money? Did they separate from employment for acceptable reasons? And so there's sort of a triangle between the former employer the worker themselves, and the state workforce agency. And so that triangle provides some safety, at least double-checking of data elements within unemployment insurance. Yeah, it's called a W-2. And, of course, freelance and gig people have a thing called a 1099. Maybe they hadn't heard of that one. And so, therefore, what led to all of these improper payments? Well, the really big driver here, Tom, is that this was a program that had self-certification in place for a vast majority of the payments that went out the door here. To go back to you know how much money we're even looking at here, labor issued $131 billion in assistance in the first year of this program in 2020. And a lot, the vast majority of those payments went out before it had put stronger measures in place here. And what we've known for a variety of programs is that that self-certification was a huge driver for fraud and improper payments. For some added context here, I spoke with the former executive director of the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, Bob Westbrooks. He recently wrote a book explaining all this fraud here. And he said that, you know, early on, the Secret Service said that international criminal organizations had filed fraudulent claims in all 50 states. It is an eye-watering kind of fraud. There's no doubt about it. The number doesn't surprise me. It, it actually saddens me and confirms, I think, what we've, what we've known for some time. Well, okay, so now we know and can admire the problem in which billions and bil- tens of billions of dollars went down the virtual toilet, you might say. What more are agencies now doing maybe to prevent future improper payments of this nature? Right. What they're doing now is they are investing in some of these state unemployment insurance programs, the IT that underlies them. What we've learned is that some of these systems have been uh, underfunded for decades now, and so they are trying to modernize those uh, to handle any surge in claims coming in. One other thing that the Labor Department tried to do in 2020 was stand up an 
and Unemployment Integrity Data Hub that would give states an opportunity to cross-reference claims coming in and make sure that, for example, the same Social Security number wasn't used in you know, a dozen states to file for unemployment. But what we learned is that early on, at least, uh, only a fraction of states were taking advantage of that hub. And so there's a real incentive now for everyone to make use of that data and just do some basic cross-checking before cutting that check. And, Jory, you talked to a lot of former people. I guess maybe they're former because they were in the prior administration or they're running with their tails to get away from this problem. But what else do they say is necessary to get around this and not have it happen again. Yeah, one thing that really came up here, and we've heard this time and again, a lot of agencies in 2020 and 2021 really emphasized speed of payment, saying this was such an emergency situation that they were willing to break a couple of eggs to make an omelet here, get that money to people who really needed it. But I also spoke with former PRAC Deputy Executive Director, Linda Miller. She said that from the perspective of agencies, uh, they really were focus exclusively on that speed of payment. They, for even before the pandemic, weren't prioritizing uh, that improper payments and those checks uh, and measures to uh, have in place there. And she's a former GAO uh, executive, and she spoke to her experience during that time. When I was a GAO and we would talk to agencies, they would say, our mission is to get these benefits into the hands of the people who need them. Our mission is not to identify fraud, waste, and abuse. And what we used to say was, no, your mission is to get these benefits into the correct hands. Yeah, so just the same old story on a really massive scale that we are now still uncovering body by body in the aftermath of the pandemic. Right. You know, I think the theme here is that a lot of these problems are not new. A lot of these problems predate the pandemic. But when we saw this surge in spending go through these programs, it really highlighted these existing problems on a massive scale. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to read it and weep his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 